guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani. I'm Skip, and today we are thrilled to have Jelani Cobb here with us. Jelani Cobb is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a professor of journalism at Columbia University. Mr. Cobb is CMC's 2018 MLK commemorative speaker, and his talk is co-sponsored by the President's Leadership Fund. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Thank you. Uh, one of the questions that we like to begin each interview with our guests is asking about the concept of inflection points um, mm -hmm. or pivots in their lives, be it their personal or professional, mm -hmm. that really led them to where they are right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you could take a moment and share some with us, we'd appreciate it. Oh, sure. I mean, first off, uh, I have, I don't know, like more inflections than, than, like, than like straight narrative points That's you know? fair. it's just one big inflection <laughs> um so i mean here's one i think that's interesting that might be applicable to young people uh and it's a story i tell young people for a reason and i have written four books i have a fifth book that's just about done and i'm a staff writer at the new yorker and i've written tons of articles and you know this is what i do and um, there's a moment though that I always kind of find myself going back to, and that is I was a first generation college student and, uh, neither of my parents had gone to college. Uh, my father had only gone to elementary school. My mother had a high school diploma. Wow. Mm -hmm. My father's from a small town, uh, in segregated, segregated Georgia, uh, called Hazelhurst. Uh, if you have heard of it, it means that you live there. Okay. <laughs> um, Similar to Sugarland, Texas. Right. right. Or if you tell me that you are you're from there, that means that you're my cousin. <laughs> um, and, you know, they both came to the north. My mother was from Alabama. They both came to the north uh, as part of the Great Migration and, you know, met in Harlem. And uh, I was born and raised in New York. And, you know, I was the first one to, to go to college. And my first week and and in my first week of my freshman year i took an english class and we had to do a diagnostic essay which is basically just seeing how well you can write and i sat down and they gave us a topic or three or four topics to choose from and i just froze i had this idea that uh all of my peers had probably you know generations of college graduates in their families or that they had um, a kind of higher caliber education than I did because I came from uh, public schools in New York City. And um, and I just kind of psyched myself out. Mm -hmm. I was convinced that I couldn't write anything. Uh, or if I did, that I would, you know, expose myself as someone who was definitely not college material. And so at the end of the class period, um, I had a completely blank page and my professor who was very kind of wise and patient, um, older Caribbean gentleman, uh, told me to, you know, come to his office the next day. So I come to his office and he says, just sit down and try to write something now. And so I was like, okay. So I sit down and I write this essay and I know it's terrible. <laughs> it's like, I'm certain that this is terrible. And he reads it, and he's kind of doing the way, the thing that, you know, like doctors do that makes you really nervous. They're reading and going, hmm, <laughs> hmm, hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then he starts scribbling some notes, and, you know, he gives me a B. And I thought, I'm sure this paper does not deserve a B, but he just did this to boost my self-esteem. 
And so the next week, it was a 14-week semester, me to write one essay per week. And so the next week, I wrote this essay, and uh, I got an A. And I was like, oh, my God, I got an A. And it's kind of, like, amazing. And then the next week, I wrote, and I got an A. And then the next week, I got an A. And then for the 14 weeks that we did actual work, I got an A every single one um, of those weeks. And by the middle of the semester, other students were asking me to read their assignments before they turned them in. That's incredible. Isn't it? It's kind of funny. Um, And so at the end of the semester, I called my mother and and said, I think I'm a writer, you know? And so we took that experience of being utterly convinced that I could not do something um, to be able to attempt to do something with no expectations. Uh, And I guess on the most, the most facile level, it's saying that you have to have confidence in yourself. Um, But it's also, I think something about being open to possibilities that it really hadn't crossed my mind that this might be something I was good at. And it was also kind of a weird thing that I realized during the semester, which is that I'd grown up in the 1980s in New York where hip-hop culture was just exploding. And I'd been, like everyone else, you know, my high school kind of writing raps and, you know, rapping along with our kind of high school groups and everything. Mm -hmm. And at some point I learned, I realized that the things that, I had taught myself in terms of writing raps were the same skill sets that I needed to write essays, that you should use colorful language, that a sentence should have a particular kind of rhythm, that you should try to put an image in someone's mind, you know, that they can visualize it as you're saying it. And you should avoid cliches, and that there was this kind of transference between one thing and another. And once I understood that, I said, oh, oh, I actually I actually <laughs> know how to do this. Right. So fast forward 20, more than 20 years, um, and I get an assignment from The New Yorker. At this point, I've been writing for decades, mm-hmm. and I was shook <laughs> <laughs> because this is The New Yorker. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, I had this assignment, and... I sat down and said, remember when you were an 18-year-old kid and you didn't think that you could write? Full circle. Write something. Yeah. And I sent it off. And the thing that was, like, I think important about that is that once you have that frame of reference, you can always go back to it. And so that was the first inflection point that I've had to remind myself of being that person um, and and kind of traveling through that moment and I've done that at each time that something has intimidated me in life that's been one of my frames of reference absolutely well it's a fascinating story and, and um, as, as we mentioned uh, you are CMC's 2018 uh, MLK commemorative speaker mm-hmm. um, so we thought we might uh, open and, and ask uh, ask you what's a specific way uh, the Reverend Dr. King impacted you and, and what do you think is his grading, uh, great his greatest lasting legacy mm-hmm. um well, it's interesting because it's it's connected, um, I think, to what I was just talking about. That there's a lot that, uh, you know, King, there's a huge impact, obviously, that King had. But for me, uh, the way that I've engaged with him most directly has been uh, as a writer. Hmm. You know, people think about him as, you know, a public speaker and an organizer and a leader. 
But I was the person who was looking at the poetics of the metaphors that he was putting in speeches uh, or, uh, you know, the way that he was uh, weaving together uh, words with a particular melodic, you know, flavor to them. Um, or let's just say a melodic sensibility to them. Right. And so, yeah, I, I remember uh, the first time I read Letter from Birmingham Jail and outside of the civil rights part of it and outside of the agreement with the activism that he was proposing, I remember just being held, you know, captive by the beauty of the language. And then you later learn that he wrote that letter in bits and pieces and that it was smuggled out right. of the jail. Right. You I know. think Skip and I can both yeah. attest to every mm -hmm. time we've had to read that for it's a class. Incredible. It's just yeah. re relearning um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. how great of a writer he is. Right. You're absolutely right. So that thing, I think that's that for me, like engaging with him as a writer. Absolutely. And so for someone like the um, the Dr. Reverend King, there's he, he's definitely a complex historical mm -hmm. figure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're ones on the same sort of caliber where although that you know he's contributed so much to society um that that's not to say that you can kind of overlook very complex personal lives and so my my question to you is to to speak more about how we can sort of revere the contributions that um that people like Gandhi that people mm -hmm. like mother teresa mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. dr dr king have have really affected on society um, and still understand that, you know, they were humans and with flawed personal lives uh, and really bring them back to that humanistic level. Yeah. I, I see. I, I, I think the problem with that is that we typically don't have a diet um, of complexity. And so when we get it, we don't know what to do with it. Right. Um, and we think that people, even in, in like movies, we get the, um, you know, the character, the hero is the person who's just, uh, relentlessly virtuous right, um, right. to the point where it makes you want to puke. Um, <laughs> too good to be true. Too good to be true. And so, um, although there's been like, this kind of appeal of anti-heroes in mm -hmm. like American, you know, film too. So I think that's, uh, you know, a counterpoint. But but generally speaking, we don't engage with complexity around people and say that uh, you can be, uh, you know, a terrific exemplar in one way and also have shortcomings in another way because fundamentally we all do right uh and so i remember the first time i told students that king was a smoker and they were kind of like what yeah he smoked <laughs> right chain smoked and and they were like what well i don't i mean they, they just seemed to be at odds with the person they knew and right. i said if you were under the kind of pressure he was under <laughs> you would chain smoke too <laughs> right? like there were all these kinds of points. And so I think that sometimes when you look at, um, you know, influential figures in history uh, and one single discussion of their shortcomings uh, can disparage the way that we think about them, you know, it means that we weren't granting them, you know, their full human dimensions in the first place. Absolutely. Um, so to pivot, we, we wanted to ask, because, sort of uh, last semester events occurred on campus that really brought the concept of free speech um, mm -hmm. you know, to the headlines and, and to the forefront. And this is, was also reflective on university campuses across the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, there is one uh, sort of article that, that I read where you were commenting on Kellyanne Conway being invited on a show called Reliable Sources mm -hmm. um, and how you were 
uh, sort of were, were critical of the journalist that mm-hmm. that invited her. Um, and that really then brought up the concept of giving someone a forum who you don't find to be a credible mm-hmm. uh, sort of spokesperson. And so I wanted to ask, you know, we've been really grappling with the concept of their being a line in free speech mm-hmm. um, and wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And then if so, if you do believe there is a line, where is that line? Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, about the, the Conway, um, I'll start there. Okay. So uh, what I was responding to was the fact that I think that uh, particularly early in this administration's history, uh, there was a lot of misinformation that was being presented and mm-hmm. just wasn't being challenged. Uh, and so... If you are a media person and you're not pushing back against something that you know to not be true, or you're giving very tepid, um, you know, challenges to to what's being said, then you then become an accomplice in misinforming the public. Right. And I think that that was, um, you know, one of the concerns. And also thought that it was a kind of an irony that uh, the defense of Kellyanne Conway was around issues of free speech. <laughs> Whereas this administration has been incredibly antagonistic. And in my own particular uh, perspective, uh, harmful to the existence of a free and independent independent press. And so I thought that there were all these kinds of, con- all these kinds of controversial, or rather um, contradictory elements uh, in, in how that was being handled. Now, in terms of the line, when we're talking about private institutions, um, it's different than you know public institutions right. because there's a you know the the uh, the ways in which our uh, private institutions have the freedom to determine what their you know codes will be and right. so on. Of course, it becomes a little bit more complicated if they are private institutions that accept federal funds for anything. Well, that you know makes it a little bit more complex. But I do think there is a line. And the line should not be, I disagree with what you're saying. The line should not be, what you're saying is disrespectful. The line should not be, um, what you're saying is obnoxious or even offensive. But I do think that there's a line when someone becomes dangerous. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, you have to say, well, I don't think that it's responsible to present this person with a forum. Uh, and so uh, last year, there was an issue around uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. Yep. Uh, at Berkeley. At, at right. Berkeley. And uh, I don't agree with the violence that was used to prevent, to prevent him from speaking. However, if his objective was, uh, as had been reported, to divulge the citizenship status of people on campus, thereby uh, exposing them to any number of possible dangers, then no, I don't think that person should be given a public forum. The other side of it is too, and dangerous is one of the criteria. Uh, I do think that there are ideas that are so far into the realm of crack pottery. <laughs> crack that, pottery, that's a new one. <laughs> that, that you... Uh, disparage your institution by giving them a forum. Uh, and, you know, I've heard this a number of times, especially in the last year, last year and a half, uh, where there have been people who've been brought who have had, uh, you know, alt-right or white supremacist sympathies, and it's always been under the kind of banner of free speech. 
And I've said, well, I don't see people doing the same thing for vaccine deniers or flat earthers mm. uh, or um, any of the uh, kinds of 9-11 truthers, um, <laughs> people who, who have ideas that are far outside the mainstream. I don't see psychology departments saying that we're going to invite this phrenologist um, under the banner of free speech or uh, biology departments saying that we're going to invite this Lamarckian geneticist. These ideas that are just, that are completely fallen out of any kinds of uh, resonance in actual academic scholarly thought. Like nobody thinks that these ideas hold any water. And so we're comfortable with saying that they shouldn't be pre presented in this kind of forum or we, we run the risk of giving them more validity than they actually hold. Uh, and uh, I think that one of the comparative points is that when we look at scholarly journals, scholarly journals serve the same purpose as universities, to disseminate information, right. to sponsor, to foster debate, uh, to, uh, you know, allow for a community of people to exchange ideas, et cetera. Mm. But you don't have crackpots writing for the Journal of, um, for Lancet or the Journal of American History or right. any of the kind of things. We're like, well, you know, we think that you're kind of nuts. <laughs> so we're not going to give you a forum right. for this. So I think that there is a way that we do this in a way that um, preserves free speech in its, at its core, but doesn't allow, um, doesn't encourage mm -hmm. the promulgation of um, crackpot ideas. Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely a fair point. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the sort of criticisms that, that were had when we had our own sort of contentious speaker on mm -hmm. campus last semester um, from folks who wanted to be able to hear her speak was mm -hmm. that in what other forum do we have to challenge those ideas? Mm -hmm. um, because we're fortunate enough to have the Athenaeum on campus where we mm -hmm. do have a question and answer period. And so my question to you is that, is that something we should afford students? Because mm -hmm. although these ideas are are out of the realm of, of really logic and, and rationale, it's it's potentially what you're going to encounter later mm -hmm. on. Um, and in building that ability to want to engage with people who, who really hold these beliefs and, and mm -hmm. be able to challenge them in an intellectual rationale and I you know think it's important to add in a respectful way, mm -hmm. um, is that deserving of the situation? Yeah, I don't think you have to challenge in respectful ways. You don't? Honestly. Okay. No, I don't. Um, I mean, I think that there's probably a line in that, too. Okay. But, I mean, people have satire uh, and ridicule that's not necessarily respectful. And I don't think you should prevent somebody from coming because they're not respectful. Um, I think that that becomes a way in which we become much more delicate than we need to be. Mm. And I think it's important to challenge. That's one of the things I do say that when you have these events um, for students who are opposed to, you know, whatever this particular speaker is thinking, that my solution is to generally say that you should challenge the person's ideas, that you have a counter event the following week, uh, or you have a counter event outside, you know. I don't believe, except in the most extreme instances, that someone should be denied a forum. Um, and I think that is like when somebody is... Uh, kind of confirmably a crackpot with dangerous um, ideas or, right. Right, or, right. or actually Fine. like kind of promoting danger. Mm -hmm. And we do have other precedents for that. You know, we don't allow people to incite riots. We believe in free speech, but there is such a thing as incitement to riot. You go like, you, you can't just go, um, okay, everyone let's, uh, you know, let's run into the police station and start punching cops. <laughs> that's not 
yeah, <laughs> acceptable. Fair. No, it's not a good idea, right. generally speaking, anyway. Right. Absolutely. So um, we actually only have time for one more question. Um, and that question is a question we ask all of our guests. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and the question is, uh, what is your personal definition of success? Mm -hmm. And uh, what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves? Mm -hmm. We hit the heavy hitter one for the, <laughs> the last question of the interview. Um, I think that my personal definition of success is utilizing all my talents to the best of my ability and being able to um, make it easier for people who come after me to do the same. That's my idea of it. Short and sweet. Yeah. Right, we appreciate it. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Professor, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.